Hello, this is Tim with one final reminder about the Tonebender Sound Design Meetup in Los Angeles this Thursday, February 29th. We will be gathering on the covered patio at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City at 7 p.m. So come on out to join the LA Sound community, have some laughs, and meet friends old and new. Make sure you search me out to say hi and tell me what you've been up to lately. It's going to be a really fun night, and I know I'm looking forward to it. Okay, enough of that. Let's get talking with Richard King. Here we go. Welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today as we talk to Richard King about his amazing last year or so of work. It starts with last summer, Oppenheimer was released to great acclaim. It has an absolutely arresting soundtrack that I personally really, really enjoyed. Then in December, Maestro was released, also to critical acclaim, and it was an audience favorite as well. Richard has been nominated for an Academy Award as a supervising sound editor on both those films, as well as an MPSC Golden Reel for both those films. But that is not all. Next month, Dune 2 comes out, and Richard was the sound super on that as well. So let's introduce Richard for his third appearance on Tonebenders. Richard, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Hi, Tim. It's great to see you and hear you. (laughs) And hear me, yes. Uh, Richard, let's start with a quick compare and contrast. Uh, can you talk about kind of the different approaches you had to take between Oppenheimer and Maestro and maybe even how dealing with the different directors uh, was different from each other? Well, every film is completely different from the last one. You work with a different set of people, there's a different dynamic, and the goals of the film are different. There couldn't be a really a comparison of the two. I would say that the goal in Oppenheimer was to create a very strong track that reflected a sense of time and place that conveyed the idea of the latent power and energy available in quantum particles. And the goal in Maestro was to work around the music of Leonard Bernstein, which was the score of the film. Um, They're all his compositions, and uh, we wanted to make the sound design as, as musical as possible in the sense that it had a rhythm, that it had an ebb and a flow, that it really have a break from scene to scene, that it sounds flowed from one scene to the next invisibly. So there's not a, there's not a sharp contrast from location to location um, at that cut. And basically try to treat sound design as music, as a musical component. And uh, do you want to compare and contrast the director's approach? How you interacted with them, I guess? I think this is my eighth film with Chris. So we have a, a good pattern that we've developed it involves me getting involved quite early at least in the research phase i guess you'd say i get an opportunity of many months while chris is shooting to uh, after having read the script to think about uh, ideas think about things we might want to record think about different concepts without coming up to any solutions, not having seen the film and wanting to keep my mind open to what I was going to see. And then the mixed process of experiment, working as hard really on every scene in the film as any other scene. There were only a couple of scenes that that we really came back to 
consistently, uh, but every scene in the film, we stretched our imaginations to imagine what might, what sounds might put us in these locations and, and situations. Maestro was also an evolution from a starting point kind of late in the process. I was involved long after the shoot was over and was brought onto the team that included uh, Thomas Zanich, Dean Zapancic, and uh, Jason Ruder, who had worked with Bradley on A Star is Born. They had kind of a expectation of what how Bradley would want to work. That involved, I think we did three temp mixes, which were rolling temp mixes. Uh, the work was carried on from temp mix to temp mix, as is commonly the case these days. And then when we got to the final, we kind of got the movie into a shape where, yes, now it's a movie, now it all holds together. And then we spent uh, the rest of the mix of several weeks and a couple of go-backs refining that and, again, experimenting and trying different approaches. There was a point where we wanted to add camera noise to some of the scenes. Uh, and we tried so we tried all of these ideas and rejected the ones that didn't work after we lived with them for a while. And it was a good long process of, of mixing. And I think that allowed Bradley to really meditate upon the film and, and live with the different mixes for a, a time and come to a, you know, a conclusion about what the film should ultimately sound like. The same could be said for working on Oppenheimer, it's kind of a faster process. Or every week we would work all week. We would screen the film Friday, either at on the dub stage or at a local theater. And then come back to the the mix stage and go over notes and resume working. Work another week. We screened every week. Every week was a was a cycle, and it allowed us to in that kind of you know structure. We were able to to have a second crack at everything. And when you live with something for a while, the inconsistency sh start to show up, and areas that are a little bit maybe weak sonically start to show up. So we were able to um, come to a point where we felt like we had lived with every part of the film, every scene in the film for weeks and had got it just the way that Chris wanted it. Well, you mentioned experimentation. I'd like to kind of dig into one scene in Oppenheimer and figure out how it evolved, or maybe the answer is it didn't. You guys had a perfect plan from the beginning, but a, a very arresting scene for both dynamics and just pure creativity is kind of his victory speech. He uh, goes into the hall. The crowd is stomping their feet really, really loudly. Then the crowd is cheering really, really loudly. Then the crowd gets quiet. He says... Uh, a very short line, the crowd goes ecstatic again, and then we start getting experimental. We stop hearing the crowd, even though we're seeing them, we're hearing Foley when we're not hearing other things. How did that come together? How much of that was pre-planned? Like when you went on to the mix stage, how, how did that evolve? Oppenheimer was an enigma, even to his friends. <laughs> and um, and he, I believe, is an, an enigma to me still. That's one of the few scenes where we are given a glimpse inside Oppenheimer's head and his feelings. And in fact, it was some of the first shots of the film that I saw. I Chris um, invited me to the last day of dailies, which was here in L.A. at the lab. They previously screened all their dailies on location. 
But the last day they were they were back from location and the shots of um, it wasn't actually that scene. But similar kind of sound design choices were made. Some of the scenes with the, the background shaking, we get the feeling that Oppenheimer is kind of losing his footing a bit, finally coming face to face with these enormous contradictions, which he has lived with for years, eagerly trying to create this uh, weapon, this big experiment that had unlimited funding. And this was like a scientist, a physicist's dream to be able to explore these these areas. Um, but he knew at the, uh, at the end that the, the goal was to create a bomb that would kill a lot of people. The more people, the better in the military's uh, view. Once the bombing was uh, successful in Japan and, um, you know, he, he just, it kind of, he, he had nowhere to go. He had no more, there was no more obsessing about uh, an engineering problem or a physics problem uh, in the creation of this. And, and the audience reflects this bizarre, nightmarish, uh, contradictory state. Half of them are, are, cheering and laughing and drinking the other half are weeping and throwing up and so it's a nightmarish sequence we all started working on that quite early we created a sound editorial a lot of sounds kind of a presentation sent it to chris chris ultimately came up with the kind of basic shape of that sequence chris and, Je and jennifer lane the editor experimented with the taking out of the voices at a certain point and so the basic kind of the basic framework was something that, that they came up with quite early in the process. We contributed to it and we, you know, refined it. I think he had the basic design in, in his head from early on. And, and I think they just tried things until they came up with something that wasn't expected. We really want the audience to have the same feeling of Oppenheimer and feel this complete disorientation, you know, to, to treat it in a kind of more typical movie fashion and maybe make the voices of the crowd very reverby or dull or alter them in some way. It felt like this kind of bold approach was much braver and much more effective in conveying that. The stomping was actually a motif throughout the film that is mentioned in the script. The stopping as a reflection of Oppenheimer's growing sense of regret or sense of horror at the events. And that's mostly production sound that Willie Burton recorded on set. We augmented it with Foley and some sound effects to emphasize the low end of the of the stops. The basic kind of shape of the scene was something that Chris came up with early. The music changed quite a bit in the scene. Originally, there was a Penderecki piece that was written as a um, tribute to the victims of Hiroshima, Hiroshima bombing. Ultimately, Ludwig recorded a piece for the scene, which is very powerful. We tried different types of quiet because it eventually goes very quiet just before all the sound comes back. And uh, you know, there are all sorts of flavors of quiet. And we experimented with that quite a bit to create this sort of um, nuclear winter background that is ultimately there in the track before the explosion of sound comes back. You know, the memory of the Trinity test explosion and the crowd going crazy, both with glee and horror. Uh, but that, that probably was the, one of the scenes that we, every week, we would make some change to that and try it and live with it for a week and see how it felt.
that's one of the things I love about this podcast is we get to talk about different flavors of silence, as you said. Like that's not a conversation I get to have a lot in uh, my life. So that that's really great. I, I love that idea. Different flavors of silence. Something else that uh, I've heard you talk about for this film is the idea of the amount of research that was done before you started recording to figure out what is authentic. For instance, the idea of when the bomb goes off, the actual explosion is, you know, not that it was easy to do, but, you know, a big tactile hit. But it's what happens after the explosion. And the way you talked about how you read interviews with people who were actually at it, and they described how the sound kept going on for a very long time. Do you want to talk about how your research kind of influenced that scene, maybe? You know, we're not making a documentary, but I find it very helpful to have some knowledge of the facts in a historical film and find a lot of inspiration and can frankly steal a lot of ideas from reality, from the, the way things actually happened. In that way, I think the story gains authenticity. Really, the research helped in a lot of sequences. Um, the Trinity scene is a well-documented event, and there are lots of firsthand descriptions available. But also just the the quantum physics involved helped to inform me in the almost unbelievable power that's latent in quantum particles. The strong nuclear force that holds atoms together is the strongest force in the universe. And yet it's down at a sub-microscopic level in an area, obviously, where there's no sound or light because these objects are if they are objects, are smaller than a light wave. So there's not even any perceiving them with our senses. But they understood them mathematically. And they understood that they were re- that they existed through mathematics. And they understood how to, they came to understand how that energy might be released through the use of math. So it helped me just in kind of grokking that degree of, of, of energy and of power to imagine that a a sphere of plutonium the size of a softball is what made that 20 kiloton explosion is is kind of amazing to think about. I saw a photograph once of a second tower they built that was stacked with boxes, crates of TNT, the size of a, a large room. It, 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 the boxes were maybe uh, 20 feet tall and you know 20 feet wide, 15 feet deep just stacks of boxes adding up to what might have been half a kiloton or one kiloton of of explosives. And they set that off just to kind of start to gauge, okay, how far back should we be from the tower? And, you know, what kind of things should we start thinking about in preparation for the real test of the, uh, of the atomic bomb, even all of that TNT, all of that dynamite didn't come close to that, softball-sized sphere of plutonium that blew up that was made to uh, go critical. And that was, to me, really helpful in both in the Trinity test and in, in, um, in conveying the idea of the power of quantum energy through quantum shots that Oppenheimer dreams or envisions or has visions of, has nightmares of earlier on in the film. I guess what I wanted to lead up to with that question on the research is specifically the moment after the Trinity bomb goes off, then we go silent almost. We hear some breathing. We get the big impact. But then there's another like 10 seconds of really cool 
sounds that aren't as uh, powerful, but they're, they are as powerful, if that makes sense. I don't know. The impact of the explosion when I was in the theater knocks you back. But then there's this second percussive wind almost that sucks you forward and then knocks you back again. Uh, how, how the heck did you do that? <laughs> uh, well, you want to be true to physics. So Chris and Jen designed into the cut, obviously, that pause before the shockwave hit. They were five or six miles away from the tower. That pause is one of the things that makes the actual explosion so powerful because the audience expects the bang to happen when the flash happens. So the flash happens, we don't hear a bang. The audience is kind of off put for a while and they wonder if, are we in Oppenheimer's head? Are we in some dream state that he's entered? It gives us a chance to appreciate, if that's the word, the visual awe of what they're seeing and what they're feeling in that moment, just seeing that that fireball and the shockwave hits. And it's almost a relief. It's almost like reality has returned and, and everyone can relax. And, you know, his brother says it, it worked. They can all kind of breathe a sigh of relief that they're not all dead and that they didn't burn the world up. As you, as you said earlier, one of the descriptions of the test regarding sound was that the sound seemed to last linger forever, that it was like thunder, but not like natural thunder. It had a different quality to it as the sound was bouncing around the low hills surrounding this large valley that the tower was in. The shockwave hits, everything in the bunker shaking, vibrating, the, 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 the physical bunker itself is creaking and groaning and, and, and withstanding the pressure of this wind, which is hitting the bunker, and which is what we hear kind of following the initial impact of the shockwave, which I really wanted to be a super transient event with no buildup, no little whomp. Imagine like a cinder block wall traveling at you at the speed of sound. That's what I wanted it to kind of feel like to the audience, just this enormous sound that's not really an explosion i mean it has explosive elements in it but it's also it has a kind of an odd quality to it i didn't want to just use the sounds of chemical explosions and then just play them louder for the atomic explosion i wanted to try to find some new uh way to present it and um per my reading of all the first-hand descriptions i think we we captured it uh sonically uh really well really proud of that Another really effective thing in the film is uh, when we kind of go into Oppenheimer's head when he's having his panic attacks and we see kind of things on a molecular level, there's a vibrating sound that is one of the coolest sounds I've ever heard. I loved it. It made me think of uh, like abstract movies that I studied in college back in the day, kind of Stan Brackage type stuff. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that name. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of stuff that I studied in college, too. That was my film school. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So how did you come up with those sounds, and uh, how many iterations of them were there? Do you want to talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, the sounds are meant to represent quantum energy or the notion that light is both a particle and a wave, and also the notion that atomic particles are both particles and waves. And that it's a kind of a nebulous area to, to describe these things in physical terms, because we could never witness them in you know uh, uh, physically. And the images are very evocative to me, very strong images, and they were all captured on set. You see the 
Oppenheimer laying in bed and you see those bands of light or energy playing above him, they did that. That's one shot. That's not an altered shot. They had the devices that made those things above him and shot through them to his face. We wanted the sounds to be quite tangible and not recognizable, but recognizable as as recorded sounds, not as something that we um, that we made with the synthesizer. So we use natural sounds, electronic sounds that we altered a lot. Randy Torres, who helped me with the sound design, helped a lot with those and did some great work. We really wanted to show the danger of that stuff, of that of that uh, amount of power, and also the the kind of mind bending nature of how do you how do you imagine how does a human imagine something that is both a particle and a wave. It also reminded me of string theory because they say in string theory that the strings are actually little loops. And that's what those things are, those little loops that are sort of coming in and out of phase with each other. And coming in and out of phase was a sound that we wanted to try to achieve with those because they do at, at times kind of appear to go into sync and then they they wobble out and, and vibrate out of sync with each other. And we wanted to give that movement to that sense of of the two bands kind of working with and against each other it's like trying to put the positive end of two magnets together it, it, it sort of fights you we actually got that pretty quick we got those shots early because they're not visual effects so we got them you know early those are the kind of things that we started working on quite early in the process just in case it was it proved to be difficult to find the right sounds that's the kind of thing you want to give yourself lots of time to to experiment with should you need it. But between Randy and myself, we we happened upon them pretty pretty quickly. Give Randy a high five for me because uh, I thought they were super impressive. Those scenes were great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, congratulations on all your award nominations. Are you going to be at the Golden Reels? I am, yes. Okay, well, I will be there as well. So I will search you out and uh, give you a handshake that night. Good. Thank you very much for talking to me today. And uh, hopefully we run into each other soon. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Tim. I always enjoy uh, talking to you, Tim. That was the third time we've had Richard on Tonebenders, and he's been great each time. Hopefully we can get him back on soon to talk about Dune 2. This is my last chance to remind our LA listeners to come on out to the Tonebender Sound Design Meetup this coming Thursday, February 29th, Leap Day. It will be at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City at 7pm. It's going to be a great night, and I hope to meet lots of you that evening. Make sure you say hi and introduce yourself. Full details can be found at ToneBendersPodcast.com. On behalf of Richard King, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to ToneBenders. ToneBenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the ToneBenders and join ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.